0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. To read, I'm 2 Samuel, um, chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Zeba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zeba answered, the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amuel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops that your master's grandson may be provided for you. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, he was lame in both
1: feet. okay thank you uh emma a phenomenon that started in the 80s and 90s in california but is now known all over the world is the concept of random acts of kindness in some countries it even has a day dedicated to it the idea is simple we look out we look outside of ourselves we look out into a world And we particularly think of those we don't know or those that are different from us. And whether premeditated or spontaneous, we act with kindness towards that stranger or that alien or that outsider, knowing that we will never receive a benefit in return. Random acts of kindness. Why has it been so successful? Because we live in a world that is very often characterized by competition, personal progression profit making dog eat dog the rich get richer the strong get stronger and the poor and the weak they get left behind there's a whole philosophy of evolution that says yeah that's how society works and yet when someone acts in kindness especially someone of great power and wealth and especially to someone who has no power and wealth it touches us deeply it softens us doesn't it Didn't it soften you just hearing those stories from the three of them? It unites us. Our world needs kindness. If we've ever needed kindness, COVID-19 showed us that. And God wants to form Christ City Church. And he wants to form you to become a person of kindness, being kind internal to the church community, and as a church that we'd be kind to those outside of the church community. So one of my favorite stories of kindness is the kindness of King David to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. And as with every Old Testament story, the Old Testament is all pointing forward to Jesus, our king. So this story is about the kindness of God's king, God's Christ, first in David, and then fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. And this kindness is shown in three ways. We see a king who keeps his promise. We see a king who exalts the helpless. And beautifully and almost movingly to tears, we see a king who covers shame. And as we know the king of kindness who shows us kindness, we can become ambassadors of his kingdom because we can become ambassadors of kindness, demonstrating to the world the kind of king that we are ruled by, Jesus, a king of kindness. So let's look at these things, a king who keeps his promise. 2 Samuel chapter 1 to 8, so the eight chapters before chapter 9, we learn about God establishing David as king in Israel. The story so far goes like this Saul, his predecessor, has died, but immediately after Saul's death, Saul's son Ishbosheth. And his merry men tried to seize power, and Ishbosheth—there's <laughs> a mouthful—was was was, uh, was was made king temporarily uh, in in Israel, and David was king in Judah, and therefore there was war between the houses of Saul, Ishbosheth, and the houses of David. Israel and Judah were separated and fighting, and so in chapters one to seven, we actually learn that David brought peace within all Israel ish was disposed and he died and David unites Israel as God's king uh, and God's people are united. And then in chapter eight, we learn that, that peace that was within Israel became a peace as David subdued the surrounding nations, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the uh, Amalekites, the, everyone. David was victorious. He had vi- God gave him victories wherever he went. And so he becomes a king with complete control. Um, in one sense if you were here last week the promises of a kingdom and a great name have have started David's name is great there's no one there's no local king like him he's the biggest king in town so to speak all the nations revere him and his kingdom has peace within it and unity and flourishing within it and peace outside of it and security against the other nations in other words Israel is in a very good place and David is very, very, very strong, powerful. There's not a king that can touch him. If you've been with us in our series in 1 and 2 Samuel, up until now, David's life has been vulnerable and complicated. Uh, he's been on the run. He's been you know, in, in threat of life. He's been trying to avoid the maniac Saul. He's been trying to avoid Saul's son ish He's been trying to avoid the surrounding nations. Everyone's been trying to kill him, and now he's in charge. he's he's on top, so to speak. He's in complete control. He has complete authority. His kingdom is established. All threats are subdued. What does David do when he hits the top? He's in complete control. What does he do? He remembers a promise. He remembers a promise to his great friend, Jonathan. Do you remember Jonathan played a key role when David was in a vulnerable situation and his friendship protected uh, David and and, and David made a covenant with Jonathan and a covenant, you know, two parties and their stipulations for both sides of the covenant. And and Jonathan said, I'm going to protect you from my father Saul. But Jonathan said to David, I want you to take care of my, 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 my descendants. I want you to take care of my descendants. So we read this. Jonathan says in the middle of this, this is earlier, 1 Samuel 20, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies, which do you see has happened in chapter eight. But when David is established as king over everyone, Jonathan says, please remember my descendants. So at the end of the chapter, Jonathan said to David, go in peace. We've sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is a witness between you and me. And listen, between your descendants and my descendants. So what happens when David finally gets peace in Israel and from all the surrounding nations? The first thing that happens, chapter nine, verse one, David asks, is there anyone still left? of the house of Saul, who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And the answer is yes. And Ziba, the servant of Saul, is called. And Ziba says, no, no, there's a grandson called Mephibosheth. And he's still alive. He's Saul's grandson. He's Jonathan's son. Question, what kind of king is David? Has power and control gone to his head like it did Saul? Has his success and victories made him proud like Saul? Has his status and popularity had a detrimental effect on his character like Saul? No. David is a man of his word. David is a man who keeps his promises. How easy would it have been for David to forget that promise he made to Jonathan so many, you know, seasons before? So much has happened. There's so much water under the bridge. And after all that Saul did and his son Ishbosheth did, they both try to kill me. How easily would it be to justify, well, you know, I know I made that promise to Jonathan, but have you seen what they did to me? The family, his family did. I, I, they don't deserve kindness and loyalty after all they've done. But David's a man after God's own heart. That's why he was chosen. And a man after God's own heart is a man of his word, a man of trustworthiness, a man of promise, a promise that can be kept, uh, you know, that, you, that he will keep. And so there's a lesson for every single one of us, particularly those in leadership, but all of us, when life goes well, when you have some level of control, when there is flourishing, when you are established in whatever you're trying to establish yourself in, never forget the promises you made under, under, under stress. You know, don't you do that? God, if you do this, I'll, I'll do that when you're under pressure and then you are under pressure and, and, and God rescues you. And then you sort of forget that promise that you said to God, because now life's going good again. Or, or you say to someone, listen, I'm just desperate. Would you bail me out of a situation here? Or can you come to my aid? And that person does. And, and then you, you sort of say, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll get you back. And, and then you're okay. And you forget that person. Not a man after God's own heart. You remember your promises. You remember your word you remember the people that showed you kindness when you were having a tough time and you honor them when you're given stability. There's a, such a contrast with Saul. Saul didn't have the internal character to match his external status. David does. David's internal character is greater than his external status, which is amazingly great. And that's why God chose him, a man after his own heart. Do you remember when David is chosen over his brothers who are more outwardly impressive than David? And God says, no, 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 you're looking on the outside. I want to see what's in the heart. You might have a position of power and prestige and wealth and status and security, and you might be deemed by the world as success. God says, I want to know what's going on inside. People like Saul seem great on the outside, but internally they're crumbling. David is great on the outside and internally he's greater. The inside is always bigger than the outside with David, a man after God's own heart. That's what God's looking for. Your inside is bigger than your outside. And when your outside gets big, you're the biggest king in town. Your inside, your character is still bigger. It's a big problem today, actually in Christian pastors. they become celebrities and their outside gets big and their inside gets empty. Scott Saul's a pastor. I really like his writing, put it like this, Lord, give me character that is greater than my gifts and humility that is greater than my influence. The inside is bigger than the outside. That's the way of the kingdom. Lord, give me character that is greater than my gifts and humility that is greater than my influence. David is a man who keeps his promise. When he hits the top, he acts in kindness like he promised he would, though he will receive no personal benefit from acting like this to Mephibosheth. Secondly, David, he's the king who exalts the helpless. Twice in the narrative, verses 3 and verse 13, we are told Mephibosheth is a cripple. He is lame in both feet. Why is he a cripple? Well, in 2 Samuel 4, we learn that as Ishbosheth and the house of fall started to crumble and disintegrate, Mephibosheth's nurse fled for her life. And as she fled, she dropped Mephibosheth, and he was crippled in an accident. So, this is what happened. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel that they died. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. You see, Mephibosheth in principle was, a ro- well, he was of royal blood. He was the grandson of Saul. So in principle, he could have inherited the throne of, of his uncle ish but not now he was disqualified now at the age of 5 he was disabled and no one would consider him now to be king in israel i want you to imagine i want you to imagine being a 5 year old boy or having a 5 year old boy and that 5 year old boy can run and can play games and can jump up and down and can climb trees, and can play hide and seek, and can go paddling in the sea. And I want you to imagine that five-year-old boy that you are, or that you have as your child, all that is taken away in a moment of tragedy. That's what happened from Mephibosheth. And actually, that is what happens in civil war. The children who grow up in civil war, like in Syria, are the most affected, and their childhood is stolen from them. Mephibosheth's childhood was stolen from him because of civil war and the accident he had as a result of civil war as the nurse fled and dropped him. And from that time on, Mephibosheth's life was going to be marked by two things, two things. The first one is helplessness. You know, 3,000 years ago in Palestine, there's no welfare state, there's no wheelchairs, there's no special needs schools, there's no physios, anything of that kind, you're helpless. You're completely reliant on your family to support you because no one else is going to do it. And given that David was on the throne and given his uncle and grandfather been so hostile to David, he can't imagine that the king was going to help him. And yet the king does. David brings him to his home, the palace in Jerusalem. And what does David do for the helpless Mephibosheth? Did you really read the detail, verse 7? Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And then verse nine, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family, you and your sons and your servants to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. What, what does David actually do for Mephibosheth? He gives him land, the land of his father and his land of his grandfather, Saul, The ser- and servants. I mean, Zeba has got 15 sons and, and 20 servants plus Zeba, that's 36. Mephibosheth is given land and 36 servants with Zebra in charge to take care of the land. Even today, If you are given land in today's society, it sort of gives you a sustainable path, doesn't it, forward, if you handle it well. It gives you a level of power if you have land. David isn't offering a bit of charity to Mephibosheth. He's empowering him. And that's always the challenging thing when you're working with the poor and vulnerable. Anyone can throw money and and we should offer our money and everyone can show love and sympathy and we should offer love and sympathy, but it's quite another thing to empower people who are vulnerable, to give them a means of surviving on their own. So they're not always having to receive benefits of other people, enable them to stand on their own two feet. That's what Sarah, Emily and Tim are trying to do. They're meeting the immediate need and then trying to empower so the people can survive by themselves. David exalts the helpless Mephibosheth, giving him land and servants. He empowers him. He doesn't just offer him charity, a key difference. Both are important. Thirdly, so firstly, David uh, keeps his promise. Secondly, he exalts and empowers the helpless. And thirdly, he's a king who covers shame. There's one phrase that is repeated four times in this passage. Did you see it? Four times, seven, 10, 11, and 13. Four times we are told Mephibosheth always ate from the king's table like one of the king's sons. I said there were two things that marked Mephibosheth's life from the age of five. The first one was powerlessness. The second one was shame. He lived in shame. He was inadequate in society. Mephibosheth wasn't like the other boys, was he? Mephibosheth was deficient. He was inadequate. Imagine the shame of growing up helpless, totally vulnerable. You're of royal blood. You should potentially be king, but you're just cast away as a cripple. And there's this ugly disability that everyone can see. In fact, I haven't got time to give you the references. He was called Meribal as at birth. And, and Meribal means master and lord. So, you know, he had another name. And then at some point, his name was changed from Meribal, master, lord, to Mephibosheth. Bosheth means shame. Ishbosheth meant shame, his father or his uncle. And Mephibosheth, sh- Bosheth means shame. Was it a nasty nickname he picked up at school? The shameful little boy with broken legs. However, he got the name and it stuck. He was a man of shame. He was inadequate. He was deficient. He was unworthy. And don't you see that unworthiness when he addresses David? Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice? What? What? What does Mephibosheth believe about himself in his head? I'm a dead dog. The Gentiles were the dogs. They were the dirty ones. They were the unclean ones. Mephibosheth is a dead dog. He's unclean. He's unworthy. He's dirty. He's inadequate. His self-esteem couldn't be lower. And yet what happens? He always ate from the king's table like one of the king's sons. Like, Why are we told this four times? Yes, it's significantly eating together. Intimacy, fellowship. Eating does that. Yes, it's very significant, like one of the king's sons. He had basically the highest title in the land after the king. He had the greatest social security out there. If you're the king's son, there's not more privilege and security you can have. David infers, David imputes a righteousness, a status, uh, you know, as, as a son. And he makes him feel that imputation of status by eating with him. He gives him a status and then makes him feel it. But it's more than that, isn't it? What happens when you eat at a table? Your legs are covered up. Your legs are covered up. Like me now, I'm sat at a table, you can't see my legs. When you eat at the king's table, your shame is covered. Your ugliness disappears. Your unworthiness is tucked away because it's been dealt with by the king your gentleness, your dirtiness, your disability is covered at the king's table. The king's table is the place where your shame goes. It's, you're accepted. At the king's table, you are exalted, you are empowered, you are blessed, you are equal, you are free. You're imputed a righteousness, a status as a son, and you're made to feel it, not just know it in your head, because you're eating with the king at the king's table. At the king's table, all your shame goes, because you're eating with the king, and the legs are covered up. Do you know you and I get to eat and meet with the king at his table, as sons and daughters? Our king is Jesus. And he invites us to eat at his table every single day, like Mephibosheth ate every single day at his king's table. Revelation 3.20. Jesus says to the church, he says it to you, he says it to us as a church. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what's he going to do? I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me there's an opportunity there's an invitation each of us feels sh- ashamed about something maybe it's a maybe it is something physical about your body maybe it's something you've done in your past maybe it's a habit that you have maybe it's your your own family and the mess of your own family maybe maybe i don't, I don't know what it is something that we just feel inadequate we feel unworthy we feel dirty we feel we're not you know everyone else we don't want anyone else to know Jesus has come to my table, let me cover all of that. Eat with me. You see, when we take the bread and wine, communion, the Lord, we actually come to the king's table and haven't we missed it? Haven't we missed? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, bread and wine. We can't do it if we remember, and we miss it because it enacts something powerful that deals with our shame. At the king's table, When we come to take the bread and the wine at our king's table, we remember a king who kept his promise to love us for David's sake. But to love us, he had to satisfy the covenant of divine justice. But he's a king who keeps his promise at any cost. He said, I'll spill my blood to protect you. I'll spill my blood to honor my word, to love my bride. Jesus had complete control, didn't he? Complete authority. He had no one threatening him. He was in charge of the universe and yet he gave it up to show kindness. He wanted to honor a promise to you. And what was the result? Well, Katie started it at the call to worship. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're the helpless, we're the sinner, we're the rebel, we're the Gentile, we're the, we're the vulnerable, we're the dead dogs. And yet we're exalted and we're empowered. And what do we get? We get land, an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil We will get land and you will be empowered. God imputes to us a status as his children. He gives us his righteousness and then he makes us feel it and says, come and eat with me. But it's not just that, is it? It's our ugliness, our unworthiness, our disabled legs. Our king not only exalts us, he covers our shame. You know what shame does in daily life? It stops us relating to God properly. We feel we're unworthy. Jesus says, come to the king's table. I've dealt with your unworthiness. Shame stops us relating to other people rightly. We feel threatened by them. Jesus says, don't need to be threatened. I love you. Eat, uh, eat at my table and, and you won't feel threatened by anyone out there. I'll cover over your disability. And shame stops us relating to ourselves rightly because we just lose all confidence in ourselves. Are you a person that just feels like I just lack confidence because I feel, he says, come and eat at the king's table. Come and know me. Come and know my grace to cover all of that. We relate to God, right? Because he gives us a status. We relate to one another, right? Because we're his children. And we relate to ourselves, right? We regain confidence because the king is approving us. You know, it's a lovely little thought I read in my little personal devotion with Charles Spurgeon the other day. It happened to be on Mephibosheth. And Spurgeon, I've never seen this, says, why do you think David so enjoyed eating with Mephibosheth? Why do you think David so enjoyed eating with Mephibosheth? I don't know why. Well, who was Mephibosheth's father? Jonathan. And who was Jonathan? Well, Jonathan was his best friend and he loved Jonathan more than a woman and all that kind of amazing intimacy they had and And do you think Mephibosheth had any of the family resemblance? And do you think when David looked into the face of Jonathan, uh, or Mephibosheth, he saw Jonathan and it brought him joy? Do you know what our King, Jesus, when he looks at you, because the Spirit of God is at work in you, and the Spirit of God is making you more like Jesus' Father, our Heavenly Father, and so Jesus enjoys being with you. Because he's making you look like his Father. And when he looks in your face and he looks at your character and he looks inside and he does see our ugliness, but he covers that. And he says, look at the beautiful thing I'm making in the likeness of heavenly father. Many of you are making bad decisions, are feeling an emotional roller coaster, are crippled, are, 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 yeah, are crippled because of shame. The gospel we, we enact every time when we take the bread and wine is our king has covered our shame. Let him exalt you. Let him cover you. Let him change you. Sit and eat with him. Come and feast on his word every day. Know him in prayer. Participate with him with the church community. Let him exalt you like he did Mephibosheth. It will change your life. It changed his. You know, Mephibosheth got land and he also got servants, remember? There's an absolutely astonishing moment in a parable in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is talking about the return of the King. And he's saying, be watchful and be ready. And what does he say for those that are watchful and ready? He says this, it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. There's a promise that in the new heavens and the new earth, When Jesus returns, he's going to dress as our servant and Jesus is going to serve us forever. We're going to have a servant and it's going to be our king. Our our king is a servant king. Have you ever seen that verse? Jesus will one day serve you at the table of the king of kings. And all shame will go. All the things in life that are complicated and hard, your, your physical disabilities or things you're ashamed about your body will go. The emotional scars will go. The relational challenges will go. That, that thing you did in the past that still haunts you, it will be completely forgotten. You'll be at the king's table and you'll be free like Mephibosheth. So until that day when our king returns to take us home, let's keep remembering we have been given a status at the king's table as sons and daughters of our king. We've been inferred a status, we've been imputed a status, but then we're made to feed. He says, come and eat, come and enjoy me. He's a king who keeps his promise. He's a king who exalts the helpless. And he's a king who covers our shame. In him, you have everything. Let me pray. And then we'll sing, come to the altar. A great song about coming to Jesus and knowing him. Give you what you need, where you lack. Let me pray. Lord, I could, uh, I just, I just say thank you. When I think of Mephibosheth being tucked in on a chair and his legs disappearing under that table and he's suddenly an equal at the table and that thing that's crippled him all his life is gone and I think that is a picture of the gospel of what you've done for us, our king. You died for us, you were raised for us. You showed extraordinary kindness to us. You've given us a status and a wealth and an opportunity that we didn't deserve while we were still sinners, you died for it. And we just say, Lord, thank you. We just worship you. We honor you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we pray that this story would grip our hearts again with what it means that we are saved by grace and that we are children of God and that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil love f- and fade. And I pray our hearts would sing. As we sing this song, I pray our hearts would be bursting we're just so grateful for your kindness to us and as we experience that kindness lord make us a kind community kind to one another and kind to those who aren't part of us make us ambassadors of the kingdom of kindness and we pray in our king jesus name amen